you would, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 8 through 15 this morning. We're uh, back in our uh, series on the book of Acts this morning, picking up after the uh, beginning of Acts chapter 6 with the establishment of the, the office of the deacon uh, in the New Testament church. And uh, here the, the, the scene shifts to one particular man who was chosen to serve in this capacity, a man named Stephen. Uh, we'll look at, at Stephen's story in, in three sermons today and then the next two Sundays. And, and, then, um, and then it moves on to another deacon uh, named Philip. Um, and so that's where we are this morning. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Pay careful attention. This is God's word. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that, this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you might open our eyes to behold wonderful things in this, your word. We pray that your spirit would implant the word in our hearts, you would bear fruit in our lives, and that you would prepare us uh, for all challenges that we might face, to face them with faith and confidence in Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, every every good story has a, a turning point, a, a significant event as action is rising. It reaches a point where something happens that alters, that changes the and, and sets the trajectory for the rest of the story. This, this is true for stories that you may read just in books you buy at the bookstore, uh, reading for leisure. It's certainly true in moments of, of history uh, as well. You could think about D-Day, June 6, 1944, U.S. troops storming the beaches of Normandy, having uh, distracted and convinced uh, the German army that they were going to attack in a different place, and and so they were able to storm those beaches, eventually leading uh, nearly a year later to the fall of Berlin and victory in Europe in May in 1945. That was a turning point a significant event that changed the course of the war. You probably have episodes like this uh, in your family's lives, in your own life personally, things that you can, can point to that were formative, 
turning points in your own life, events that, that shaped you and made you who you are, and perhaps things that are continuing to change and shape you. In the book of Acts, uh, interestingly enough, the first turning point comes at the beginning of the book with the ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And, and now we come in Acts chapter 6 to a second major turning point in the history of the early church with the persecution and uh, killing of the first Christian martyr, Stephen the deacon. The church has grown, it's, it's expanded its witness, it's dealt with external opposition and internal conflict with the Lord's blessing all along the way. Uh, we've seen these pockets of opposition pushing back against the early church as they testified to the resurrection of Jesus, and the good news of forgiveness in his name. But here we come to a point in the book where that opposition intensifies, that we've gone from warnings, beatings, maybe thrown in prison, and they're let free after that. Now we come to death. Stephen is, as you know, killed at the end of this episode of Acts. As we'll see later, this intensified opposition uh, also leads to a further progress of the gospel. It starts a persecution in Jerusalem that pushes the early church out from Jerusalem into Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. The gospel expands even in the face of this opposition. As we consider Stephen's story, what I want us to look at this morning is the model that he sets, the example that he sets for us as a faithful witness to Christ through faithful suffering for Christ. Uh, and in his, his example, we'll see how the Lord himself calls us, equips us, empowers us, and sustains all those who suffer for the sake of of their faith in Jesus Christ. Let's look for, first at how the Lord calls us and equips us to suffer for Christ. Stephen's story uh, in some ways is unique, but in many ways, important ways, Stephen's story gives us a concrete illustration of a broader point that is true for all of us, that to be a Christian, to be called a Christian, is to be called to suffer. That suffering is right at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Philippians, that Paul's desire was to know the power of Jesus' resurrection, even as he experienced fellowship with his sufferings. Those two things go together. Now that we've scared you all out of the church, you know, it was, it was a little bit of a a risk to put suffering on the, the marquee outside. That's not an attractive word. But it's important to know that as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, all of us uh, are called to a life that involves suffering, sharing in the suffering of Christ, as well as experiencing through that suffering the power of his resurrection. And, and Stephen gives us a concrete example of that truth. Stephen suffered for his faith, not because he was a special class of Christian, but because he was a disciple of Christ, just like you are. Suffering for the sake of Christ is not something reserved for a unique, special, elite group. It is rather the experience that Jesus tells us we would, should expect as his people. He calls us to it, and he equips us for it. 
You may recall during the last uh, night that Jesus had with his disciples, during that last Passover meal, uh, before he was handed over and arrested and went to his own crucifixion, uh, Jesus told his disciples, he said, I love you. Uh, I chose you to be my friends, to be my disciples. You are my friends. Love one another in the same way that I have loved you after he washed their feet as a servant. And then he told them, know this, if the world hates you, it hated me first. If you are persecuted, it's because they persecuted me first. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as you're identified with me. At another point, he told the disciples that rulers and authorities would seize them, that they would be put in prison for his name's sake. And in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And Peter, in his first letter, tells us, Don't be surprised. Don't be amazed at the fiery ordeal that you may find yourself in as a Christian, as though this is some strange thing in the life of a believer. In fact, Peter and Paul both tell us that an integral, central part of following Jesus is sharing in his own sufferings now, with the certain expectation that we will also share in the glory and joy of his resurrection in the life to come. Those two things go hand in hand, even now in the Christian life. Through our suffering, we experience the resurrection life of Christ. And so we see in Stephen's story in particular, as his situation uh, is, is a model for us, uh, we see uh, especially how Luke presents Stephen in many ways as parallel to Jesus himself. Stephen is described in ways that intentionally connect him to Jesus. He's full of grace. He's full of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus. Stephen displays power from God through miracles and uh, attesting signs that God is at work through Stephen. This is just like Jesus. Just like Jesus, Stephen is clearly mighty in both word and deed. He performs signs. He also preaches like Jesus, Stephen is brought to trial before his own people, uh, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the council before whom he is brought. He's accused, like Jesus, by false witnesses, bribed by religious leaders, coerced. He's questioned by priests, just like Jesus. Both Stephen and Jesus meet violence in response to their testimony, and as we'll see later, Stephen imitates Jesus explicitly in his own death by committing his spirit to God and asking God to forgive those who took his life. Sounds like Jesus. Luke is intentionally presenting Stephen to us as a model of how the disciples of Christ are called to suffer as they share in the very sufferings of Christ as part of their calling as a Christian. To put it another way, witnessing for Christ, which is what Stephen is doing here, Witnessing for Christ involves more than our words. It involves more than just saying true things about Jesus or sharing what Christ has done with you. Witnessing involves the whole pattern of life that imitates Christ, both in the way we live, living for the glory of God, seeking to follow him by faith, 
but also in the way that we endure our trials, the way that we endure suffering. Our lives as witnesses are to be conformed to the very message that we bear witness to. Sometimes that means being generous uh, with our lives, with our resources, sharing, giving to one another as Christ has given to us in love and in generosity. Other times it means being conformed to Jesus' death as we take up our cross and follow the one who took up his cross for us. One writer says about the church's witness to Christ in the book of Acts that they not only preach the cross and the resurrection, they embody it. Their very lives bear the shape of the cross and resurrection of Christ. It is, as Paul says in Philippians 3, knowing his resurrection, being conformed to his sufferings. Christian life is a cross-shaped life, infused with both the trials and tribulations that come with it and the experience of the life of Christ at work in, uh, even in those trials. And so we see Stephen a cross-shaped life infused with resurrection power, witnessing to Jesus with both his words and his life. Jesus calls us as Christians to suffer, but he also equips us. He doesn't just call us to it and then leave us uh, on a limb, hanging out, uh, enduring suffering without anything to help us get through it. Rather, he calls us and equips us. He gives us grace to endure suffering right when we need it. Uh, for many of us, we, we live, I would say probably for, for all of us, uh, we live in relative, uh, a place of relative ease with regard to being able to be a Christian publicly. We still live in a community that generally accepts Christian faith or at least looks kindly upon it. Uh, and so we might wonder, we might read Stephen's story, we might hear about the Lord calling us to suffer for Jesus, and we might think, Will I be like Stephen when that time comes? If, if I have to face what Stephen faced in his opposition, will I be able to stand up to it? It's, it's a legitimate question. Most of us have not experienced what Stephen experienced in this episode of the book of Acts. Uh, we wonder, will I respond faithfully if I'm imprisoned for the sake of Jesus? We may question whether we would be strong enough to stand under that kind of pressure since we've never faced it before. Yet the good news is that the Lord does not offer us some sort of hypothetical grace, you know, some sort of amorphous grace out there that, that may not take shape. Rather, he promises us real grace so that we can stand up in whatever situation we face, and he promises to give it to us in the moment that we face it. Uh, we're not just kind of making deposits of grace and all of a sudden when we face something, we draw on that deposit. Jesus shows up in the midst of whatever we're facing so that as we live by faith, he meets us in that moment with exactly what we need, even if we don't know ahead of time what that will be or how we will respond. And so we don't need to be anxious, if you will, about whether or not we'll be able to face suffering faithfully. Jesus has promised to meet you with real grace in your time of need and calls us to trust him for it. Ed Welch, who's a, a counselor with the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation in Philadelphia, uh, once talked about his fear of drowning. Apparently has lived with kind of a consuming fear of one day being in the water and not being able to swim and, and drowning as a result of it. 
He talked about how that fear generated anxiety for him, even, a, even when he wasn't in the water or near the water. He wasn't in the situation where it could happen. He just was full of anxiety. You know, what will happen? What, what would that be like if I'm in water and I can't keep my head above the water? And yet when he actually finally faced that situation, being in the water and being under the water and not being able to come up and get the air that he needed and nearly drowning, he said that in that moment the Lord met him and took away all fear and gave him the grace that he needed to meet that situation without anxiety and fear. Some of you, I know, have been in situations where you thought you might die, that it was, it was the end. And you can testify to the Lord drawing near to you with unexplainable peace and grace that you didn't expect, couldn't prepare for, and could not generate on your own. Jesus met Stephen in, in a situation of great opposition. He probably knew that this was it, probably knew that he was going to die at the end of this sermon that he was about to preach. He, he didn't pull back. And Christ met him with the grace to face that opposition faithfully. And that same promise is for you, that whatever you face, Christ will face it with you and give you the grace to face it faithfully as you trust him. But I think it's helpful to point out that for most of us living in the relative freedom of the United States, that probably most of us will not be called to do what Stephen did, to give his life for his faith. Most of us will not be martyrs for our faith. But we need to remember that suffering in the Bible, in the New Testament, is a much broader category than just persecution for the sake of Christ. As a Christian, every experience of life and frustration in this sin-cursed world, every situation that you face with faith, falls under this category of suffering. Or as Paul describes it in Romans 8, the groanings of creation cursed by sin, longing for the day when Jesus will remove sin and restore all things. And so it doesn't just cover Stephen's episode of facing opposition because of his faith and dying as a martyr. It's also facing the deteriorating effects of old age, our bodies not working the way that they ought to. It's facing the brokenness of ruptured relationships that are difficult, and you need Christ to be at work in them. And, and, and everything in between, the internal struggles that we face with our own sin, all of that falls under this category of suffering. And Jesus promises to equip us to face those with faith, to lean upon him for grace. He, he meets us in the midst of it. The Lord calls us to suffering, he equips us for it, and we see as well in Stephen how the, the Holy Spirit empowered Stephen and promises to do the same for us, to speak boldly with wisdom in the face of opposition. I want you to kind of put yourself in Stephen's situation for a minute, if you can kind of picture what this is like. Here Stephen is, he's preaching about the resurrection of Christ, that preaching is accompanied by miraculous deeds, signs and wonders, uh, and then there's this group. I don't know if it's five groups, five synagogues. It's probably just one synagogue that had a lot of different people in it in Jerusalem. There weren't many synagogues in Jerusalem. But here you have uh, at least five different uh, groups of Jews from this one synagogue. You have some from 
kind of the area in Turkey. You have some from North Africa, some maybe from Rome who had formerly been slaves and were freed. Uh, Either way, you've got a whole bunch of experts in the Bible, experts in the Hebrew Bibles, standing up against Stephen and opposing the message that he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And notice how the Spirit empowers Stephen in this moment. Verse 10, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. These are experts, right? These are the, the experts of the Hebrew Bible of their day, standing up to argue with Stephen, and they cannot cope with his message. They can't withstand the things that he is saying. He, they cannot resist the wisdom and the spirit with which he is speaking. So notice their tactics. They bribe others to say false things. Verse 11, they secretly induce men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They incite even the people against Stephen. So far, the people in the book of Acts have all been in favor of the church. Now the mob has turned and this mob mentality has taken over. And even they are incited against Stephen and the church. They bring Stephen before the authorities and they get these false witnesses to come in and lie. He's speaking against the the temple. He's saying that the Nazarene Jesus is going to destroy this holy place and change all the customs that Moses has handed down to us. It's a mixture of truth and lies, twisting words that Jesus said, twisting words that Stephen has preached, attacking his integrity, the integrity of the message and even bringing legal action against him. They grab onto parts of Stephen's message that they knew would have incited the fiercest response among the authorities, and they twist his words. Blasphemy would have been punishable by death, so they accuse him of that. They say that he has spoken against the temple and the law. These are fighting words. You know, you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with the temple and the law if you're in first century Palestine. These are fighting words, and they know it. They're stirring up the opposition against Stephen and his witness. We see the same type of thing today. The Bible is quoted out of context and presented as if that's the full meaning. Biblical ethics are twisted and portrayed as hateful and oppressive. We see this when opponents of Christian faith point to what we might call fringe groups and extremes and present that as the mainstream of historic Christian faith. We see Christians portrayed as ignorant, uh, anti-intellectual, anti-science, opposed to progress and human flourishing. You see straw men set up, and sadly, it often works. Sadly, people grab onto those things and believe that that's the case. And yet the Spirit promises to empower us for bold witness and to give us words in those moments. I heard a story recently of a a young lady who grew up in our congregation, was in a college class, and the the professor, uh, I don't know if he had a Bible or just quoted from the Bible, but read from Ephesians 5, just one verse. If you know Ephesians 5, you can probably guess the verse that he read in a kind of state secular college setting. Uh, he read from the verse in Ephesians that says, wives submit to your husbands. It stirred the class up. Everybody's getting mad because their, their view of that 
is some twisted, distorted version that does not look like Jesus loving the church. And so you just take that one little verse out of context. You don't explain it. You don't add any interpretation to it. You just read it, and the whole class is all stirred up. And this young lady from, from our church responded and said, you've only read one verse. You need to read the rest of the context. Read the rest of the, the passage. The professor read the rest of the passage, which, as you know, places emphasis not on, I mean, it talks about wives following their husbands and so forth, but it places emphasis on husbands. Sacrificially love your wives the way Jesus sacrificially loved his church and gave himself up for her to cleanse her, to, to make her spotless and beautiful for his father. <laughs> the emphasis in that passage is on the love of Christ displayed in the love of a husband for his wife. It's not at all kind of the distortion that we often hear about it. Uh, I don't know if it silenced the class or not. I like to think that it did. But either way, the same tactics are often used today. Take it out of context. Distort it. And we need the Holy Spirit to give us that boldness in the moment to be able to say, now, wait a minute. This is who Jesus is. This, this is the truth. Here's, here's the full picture. And to demonstrate that even with our words and our lives. How does the Spirit prepare us for this? The Spirit prepares us for this in two ways. He empowers us today through our normal use of the means of grace. Reading your Bible, communing with God in prayer and in the fellowship of his people, the church. Stephen didn't just instantly get some download of biblical data and wisdom in that moment. Stephen, I think we can fairly assume had spent years reading the Bible. And when he was converted, he understood it in the light of who Jesus is. He spent time with the Lord. And the Lord used Stephen's personal preparation of the means of grace to prepare him for this moment. And and the Lord does the same with us. He prepares us through the normal use of the means of grace. Reading your Bible, praying, gathering with God's people, encouraging one another Uh, in smaller groups, discipleship and accountability. The Lord uses the means of grace, but we should be clear that the Spirit not only bears fruit through those means, but beyond them. Jesus said to his disciples, rulers and authorities are going to take you, they're going to arrest you, you're going to be brought before them. Don't don't prepare a response ahead of time. Be prepared, but don't worry about what you're going to say in that moment. Jesus says, I will give you words that your opponents will not be able to resist. And it's exactly what happens with Stephen. It's a, an empowering of the Spirit beyond just our abilities. The Lord brings something to mind that, that you wouldn't have thought of. The Lord gives you the words that you need in that exact moment, and you, you may not even be able to remember what you said later because the Holy Spirit equips you in that moment with exactly what you need to face opposition The same spirit who is at work in Stephen is at work in us today. You may have noticed the quotation on the front of the bulletin this morning from Patrick Schreiner's book, The Mission of the Triune God. He says, the spirit gives boldness to people as they speak of Christ. Boldness and spirit are interwoven. The spirit is ever active in acts, testifying to Jesus and affecting the Father's plan. If believers have been sealed with the same spirit, which we have, then this mission continues. It continues in those who confess Jesus, share their resources, and spread Jesus' name with boldness. 
The same spirit who empowered Stephen in this moment, who equipped him to face opposition, gave him words that could not be resisted or withstood or overcome by his opponents. That same spirit is at work among all of God's people today. And so we can depend upon him in that moment as we make use of the means of grace and then trust the Lord to equip us beyond that. Kevin DeYoung says about this passage, if you walk with Jesus now, you can speak for Jesus then. I think that's a good summary of what is going on here. The Lord equips us, he empowers us um, through the Holy Spirit to speak boldly with wisdom even in the face of opposition. And finally, we see how the suffering, suffering for Christ reveals glory, uh, the glory and the faithfulness of our Savior. Just briefly, look at the end of the, the episode here. Stephen has been brought before the Sanhedrin, this council of religious authorities in Jerusalem. All the false witness have, witnesses have been brought against him. And, and he's standing there, and you kind of feel almost like things are revving up. You know, he's, he's kind of gaining energy. It, it feels like some sort of scene from a superhero movie where superheroes just kind of holding on to everything and it's about to go, and that's, that's what's happening with Stephen here. He's just standing there uh, receiving all of these false accusations. And Luke tells us, and he's getting ready for this amazing sermon in the next chapter, uh, but Luke tells us in verse 15 of chapter 6, Fixing their gaze on him, the, the Sanhedrin, the council, fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. What a strange way to end this scene before he preaches. But Luke is pointing us to the fact that Stephen is a man like Moses, who spent time in the presence of God, and when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was radiating with the glory of God so that the people said, put a veil over your face. You, you talk to God for us, but cover your face because the glory of God was emanating from Moses' face. He'd spent time in the presence of God. Stephen is a man like Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration where the, the veil of Jesus' flesh, as it were, is pulled back and the, the glory of the eternal Son of God is revealed to those who were with him on the mountain, and he displays the, the glory of God in himself for those who were there to witness it. Uh, Stephen here, as he suffers and trusts in the one who suffered and rose again for him, uh, is consumed with the glory of God. His face is like an angel. I think it also points to the fact that Stephen is trusting in the Lord and has what Paul describes in Philippians as the peace of God that surpasses understanding. There's no kind of human way to explain why or how someone could stand up to that amount of opposition, probably knowing what was coming, his own death by having rocks thrown at you, and have that kind of peace and composure. But Jesus gave it. In the midst of this opposition, the Holy Spirit gave him uh, peace, a fearless response as he trusted in God's faithfulness. And the Spirit promises to do the same for us today. The Lord has called us as his disciples to expect that we follow, as we follow a suffering Savior, now exalted, uh, that we too will share in his sufferings even as we know the power of his resurrection. He, is a, he will equip us for that moment, empowering us by his Spirit, to speak boldly of Jesus when the time arises. 
And he calls us now to live the whole of the Christian life as his disciples, knowing that power, being conformed to his sufferings, looking forward to that day when we shall behold him face to face. And in the knowledge of that hope, to face all persecution, all trial, all suffering from that broad concept uh, with faith that Jesus himself is faithful and he walks with us through all that we endure. May the Lord give us grace to believe that and to live in response to it.